0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Sorry about last week, that one ended on a doozy, didn't
1: it? Yeah, it did. Thanks for that palate cleanser at the end there. I'm uh, having second thoughts about ever shipping KY Jelly in the mail again.
2: Yeah, don't do that again, Scott.
1: I don't want the mail to not come on time.
0: Nobody, Nobody wants that. And on that note, my name is Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer.
1: My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist.
0: And I'm Kelly Turner and I'm not a doctor.
1: So I've got one shout out. All right, let's do it. Diane Triester is a, is a friend of the show. She uh, reached out to me last week. She said she's been listening for a long time. She has some suggestions for future shows. She gave me some printed out sheets of paper and they are in my possession and I'm going to hand those off to you soon and you can put them on the list wherever you like. There's some good, there's some good stuff in there.
2: I love new suggestions. Yeah. Everybody keep them coming. We Please
1: them. do. All right, so... We're doing part two of the Lindbergh kidnapping case today. I'm going to get us as far as the courtroom in this story, and then Katie Gibbons, our resident non legal expert, is going to take us through the trial.
0: Non legal, non expert.
1: That's right. Sorry. (laughs) I misspoke. (laughs) All right. So let's get started. Just to briefly recap episode one of the Lindbergh case Charles Lindbergh Jr., aged 20 months, was kidnapped from the Family home in rural, rural, thinly populated New Jersey.
2: Rural is a hard word. You, uh, you, I heard a comedian one time say you can't say that word without sounding drunk.
1: <laughs> and I'm not drunk today.
2: Yeah. I think it was Dana Carvey, but he also said
0: you can't say judicial system without- <laughs> That is true, too. I can't yeah. say attestation either. Like I have to be like, attestation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. Anyway,
1: so we're in thinly populated New Jersey. Yep. On March the 1st, 1932, Uh, one month after the kidnapping, a ransom demand of $50,000 was paid in order to hopefully ensure the baby's safe return to his mother and father, but the boy was not released as promised. No one heard from the kidnappers again, and no one knew what happened to little Charlie until May the 12th of that year, when his body was found partially buried in the woods five miles from the family home. It was determined that he had died from a skull fracture. Most likely suffered on the same night he was taken from his crib, and one theory is that the kidnappers dropped him from the ladder. Remember, Charles oh. Lindbergh Senior heard a cracking oh. noise outside the window. Did not so, investigate it.
2: So you are thinking they they meant to take him alive and well, and maybe possibly the the his death was an accident.
1: Yeah. Oh. So ten days after her. Only child's dead body had been discovered. Ann Lindberg finally worked up the courage to go into her son's room on May the 21st. In his uh, closet, she found in one of the pockets of his favorite blue coat, his favorite seashell. In the other pocket, she found his red mittens. It was like touching his hand, she wrote in her diary. Oh, So, obviously, the Lindberghs spent that summer in the deepest throes of grief, and it's the kind of grief that never goes away. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the New Jersey State Police were seeking the gang of criminals, and they were certain at that point it was a gang responsible for what by then was being cast in the media as the crime of the century.
3: Yes.
2: And they want somebody to pay for this. Somebody. The whole
1: world is infuriated by Uh what's happened here. Yes, But to borrow a line from Michelle McNamara from our series about the Golden State Killer, Whoever those kidnappers were, they were gone in the dark.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So with no more Lindbergh kidnapping updates to report, the news media fell back on more staple fare for a time in the last half of 1932. The Great Depression was in full swing all around the world. Young black men were still being lynched in the South for either real or imagined crimes against whites. God, Hitler began his rise in Europe. In Mobile, Alabama. A man named J.R. Goodman was drowned by firemen trying to put out a blaze in a downtown hotel. What? And that winter, the canals of Venice froze over. Not that the authorities in New Jersey and elsewhere weren't looking for the kidnappers. In New York, the names were collected of everyone who had rented a bank-safe deposit box in March and April of 1932. Their signatures matched against the handwriting on the ransom notes.
2: That's a really smart thing to do.
1: Mm Income tax returns nationwide were scoured through, looking for possible handwriting matches. Dr. John F. Condon, remember Jaffsey from last week? Yep. He was investigated thoroughly, just in case he might have been in on the kidnapping scheme.
0: Yeah, because they, you know, criminals like to insert themselves into mm-hmm. the investigation.
1: Authorities, and, it, and it's just
0: really weird that he got involved anyway.
1: Very strange. Uh, authorities tapped his phone. They searched his house for secret panels and they dug up the ground around his summer shack on City Island. It was eventually determined that his offer of assistance to try and secure the safe return of little Charlie had been genuine, if extremely odd, and personally dangerous.
0: Yes. Yes, it's, it's odd. We're, we're there.
1: Mm-hmm. The three-section homemade ladder that had been found 75 feet from the Lindbergh Estate was taken apart literally and examined piece by piece. Initial investigations did not determine very much for certain, other than the latter had been assembled from a hodgepodge of pieces, perhaps collected from a scrap heap or a backyard pile of discarded lumber. An interesting note about the ransom money the vast majority of the $50,000, 35,000 of it, had been paid in gold certificates, and their serial numbers had been recorded and printed out and sent to banks in the area. Officials hoped that the spending of these increasingly rare notes might help lead to the kidnappers. And we need to do a little bit of history here. Okay. In response to the Great Depression, President Franklin D. Roosevelt would take the U.S. off the gold standard in March of 1933, after the kidnapping. And all the gold certificates and gold coins in the country had to be turned into banks, pulled out of circulation. The new limit for every American citizen was to be only $100 in gold per person. That's all that you could legally own in gold. In June of 33, Congress passed a joint resolution denying creditors the right to demand actual gold for payment. Up until then, if they said, I don't want this note, I want real gold.
0: That's what you had to pay in?
1: You, you would have to. Basically, the country had more money in circulation than the banks had gold reserves to back it up because in the middle of the Great Depression, people all over the country started hoarding gold in their homes, burying it in the backyard, hiding it under their mattress. So the policy of the gold standard had become untenable. uh, Despite this divine coincidence and the best efforts of law enforcement, in the eight months between the ransom handoff on April the 2nd and the end of 1932, only 27 ransom notes, gold certificates were found. Hmm. And I know the years are reversed, but the Treasury Department knew that the move by FDR was coming when the kidnapping took place because Great Britain had already gone off the gold standard in 1931 in response to the great depression. So it was being discussed. And when the treasury department got involved in helping Lindbergh get the $50,000 together, they said, Hey, let's pay a bunch of it with these gold certificates. Maybe it will help us find who did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Cause they'd have to turn them in.
1: Exactly. Gotcha.
2: But if you, if you turn them in, at a different location, would that be a problem? I mean, were they only All checking- All of the numbers
1: were on a list. I mean, okay,
2: they were on a list, but if it's some smaller bank or something that you're possibly, turning it into- sure. And you don't have It's not a, a foolproof
1: plan, but it's uh, the best yeah. one they've got.
2: Yeah, it is the best one they got, yeah. but it, it could still slip through- Sure. Based on where they- And a lot of it, I'm it. sure,
1: did slip through. So back at the Lindbergh estate, Anne had given birth to another child, John, on August the 16th, 1932- He was a healthy eight-pounder who, fortunately, did not share his older brother's fate. In fact, far from it, John Lindbergh died in July of 2021 at the ripe old age of 88.
0: Oh, wow. Oh.
1: The Lindberghs would have five more children after little Charlie, beginning with John. Well, Ann Lindbergh had five more children. Charles Lindbergh had an additional seven children on top of that. But you're going to have to wait until the very end of the show for that explanation.
2: Mm. Yeah, because I'm very confused. I don't know if I like it. He had seven plus five.
1: Correct. Wow. Plus one more if you count little Charlie.
2: I'm glad he makes a lot of money.
1: Yeah. I don't like it. On May the... (laughs) 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 I don't think Ann did either.
0: Uh, We disapprove.
1: Yeah. (laughs) On May the 1st, 1933, it officially became illegal for any individual to own more than $100 worth of gold, like I said.
2: I thought you were about to say it officially became illegal for somebody to have so many kids. (laughs) Well, in the Depression, it may should have been. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all right. right, Go
1: ahead. In New York and New Jersey, the word went out to the banks to be on the lookout for anyone trying to unload a large amount of those gold certificates. Mm -hmm. Of the 22 deposits of random gold certificates made during the year 1933, all but three occurred in downtown Manhattan in all about $4,000 worth of the gold certificates from the ransom money was discovered throughout the year of 1933, but none of the money was ever traced back to anyone because bank tellers could never remember who they got the money from a couple of weeks later when investigators showed up and said, Hey, what happened Tuesday, three weeks ago? Who was the guy who gave you this $20 gold certificate?
0: Shouldn't we be keeping a ledger?
1: Would, would, wouldn't you think that, the, that a bank would do that? Ugh. But here we are.
0: Best laid plans,
1: right? Right.
2: Yeah, and it's not like you can access the security footage at this day and age. Not even
1: close. Yeah, you couldn't even do that in 1974 when Petty Hearst was robbing banks. Yeah. Throughout 1933, news of progress on the Lindbergh case became more and more sparse. Meanwhile, Hitler had become Chancellor of Germany. King Kong, starring Fay Ray, was the big hit of the year at the box office, and by the way, according to Rotten Tomatoes, it remains to this day. The greatest horror film of all time. King Kong? That's what I said. In what year? Nineteen
0: thirty three. Fay Ray? I've
1: seen it. It's fantastic for what it was at the time. A lot of stop motion animation with the little I think it was forty inches high, the the ape that they used to (laughs) create King Kong. Covered in rabbit hair.
0: Once you like rid like the right at Universal, I don't think I can watch the nineteen thirty
1: three movie but okay. it's a, it's a classic okay. it was the height of it was the best movie ever made at the time
2: is it better than citizen kane you know we've talked about i think it, about. it is
1: <laughs> i think it is possibly the best news that came out of 1933 was that in december prohibition was repealed and i will drink to that
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: all the while time was marching on now we come to 1934 and the following events of historical significance took place Adolf Hitler became president as well as chancellor of an increasingly Nazi Germany. The immense Chicago stockyards were destroyed by a fire and Bonnie and Clyde met their tragic end in a shootout with the feds in Arcadia, Louisiana. Let's put that on the list. I would love to do Bonnie and Clyde.
3: Mm.
1: By now too, little John Lindbergh was old enough to splatter spinach into the floor as his mother wrote in her diary of the kitchen inside their new luxury apartment in New York City. The Lindberghs had donated their mansion to the state of New Jersey to be converted into a home for wayward boys, which it remains to this day.
0: Oh, wow. How about that?
1: Also, the FBI had finally joined the investigation into the kidnapping of the older brother that baby John would never know. But as we have mentioned so many times on this podcast... When multiple agencies of the time were forced to work together in those days, the whole affair usually turned into a pissing contest. The Lindbergh case was no exception. And then in early September of 1934, gold certificates began popping up on the east side between 84th and 103rd Streets. Suddenly, with their best lead in over two years, the three law enforcement agencies, the New Jersey State Police, the New York City Police Department, and the federal BI decided that they needed to start working together. So they reached out to the local papers and asked them not to print any news about the gold notes that had begun showing up in local cash registers so as not to alarm the kidnappers or whoever was spending them. On September the 18th, someone in a blue Dodge sedan paid for 98 cents of gas, probably a full tank, with a $10 gold certificate The gas attendant, suspicious about whether or not the bank would accept the note, because remember we're off the gold standard now, he jotted down the car's license plate number on the edge of the bill. The car was traced to its owner at 1279 222nd Street in the Bronx. His name was Bruno Richard Hauptmann. Okay. Who was Bruno Richard Hauptmann? Honestly, that depends on who answers the question. Hauptmann? Hauptmann. H-A-U-P-T-M-A-N-N. And that's German? That's a German name. Okay. For certain, he was a 35-year-old German in the country illegally since his arrival as a stowaway on an American steamship in 1923. He had tried to sneak over twice before that, but had been caught and deported both times. He was on the run to escape Germany because he had violated parole after being charged with petty theft. And if he'd been caught in his home country, he would have had to spend at least one year in prison for a parole violation. His first job off the boat was as a dishwasher. But he eventually found work in the trade he had been trained for, which was, wait for it, carpentry. Remember the homemade ladder?
3: Yep, I do.
1: Federal and local officers staked out Hoptman's house. They're looking for a chance to pull him in. Let's get this guy arrested. Let's see what he knows. Let's see who he is. The next day on September the 19th, 1934, cops surrounded his car with their own as he drove through the Bronx, yanked him out, and found another $20 gold certificate from the ransom money in his wallet. Oh. So was Richard Hauptmann the kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby, either alone as a member of, or as a member of a gang, or as Hauptmann told it, was he an innocent man? who had been asked to hold onto a package for a friend, a package that turned out to contain $14,600 in Lindbergh ransom notes.
3: Mm.
1: And the cops did not find out about that $14,600 because Hapman volunteered the information. In fact, he lied repeatedly to his interrogators about how much gold he still owned during the first 36 hours he was in custody. Remember, FDR pulled us off the gold standard, so it was against the law to own more than a hundred dollars worth of gold. That's why he's lying, yeah. I think.
2: Yeah, because he because
1: okay. they're going to deport his right. ass, yeah. and he's going to spend a year in jail in Germany for his parole violation. Mm-hmm. So he's hoping they don't find the rest of this money.
2: But why is it? Why is it in his wallet
1: then? Well, he's going to spend a little bit of it. He can spend. You can still have a hundred bucks. So as yeah, long but, as you don't have a yeah, but too he's much
2: holding it for a friend.
1: Well, I'm almost there. Okay, there's a reason for that. All right. So while Hauptman was being interrogated at the police station in the Bronx for 24 straight hours, other officers returned to his home on 222nd Street and started tearing the place apart. They're looking for better evidence, more evidence. And it was in his garage that they found the 14,600 all very well hidden in various places around the garage, behind the wall, in the bottom of of an empty can, Mm -hmm. and it's all ransom money. Now, Hauptmann said that the money had been in a box that he had been asked to hold for a friend who was traveling to Germany.
2: Well, he better produce the name
1: of this person. We're, yeah, he does. Okay. He does. But that's, <laughs> that's not going to help him. Okay. So his friend said, listen, just hold this box for me and don't open it. He's, he said, Hauptmann said, my friend knew he could trust me and I didn't open the box.
2: Wait a minute. He didn't?
1: He did not. He I didn't know what was in the was box. It was
2: hidden all over the place.
1: It was eventually.
2: Okay. I'm about right. to tell you what I'm happened. jumping ahead. No, I'm sorry. you're good. Don't I'm worry sorry. about it.
1: Okay. Now, unfortunately, that friend of his, who was named Isidore Fisch, another German citizen, he had died of tuberculosis while he was traveling in Europe after he handed that box to Hauptmann. And Hauptmann had forgotten all about the box, even after his friend died, until there was a leak in the roof and it got the box wet in the top shelf of a closet in his kitchen. So as he's repairing the damage, he's like, oh, yeah, there's the box that Fish gave me. And it's damaged to the point where he can see what's inside. And he realizes it's, it's full of money. And Fish left the country owing Houtman $7,000. They were in business together. Kind of a side business. And he thought, hey, he's dead. I'm keeping this money. I'm not supposed to have it because the federal government says it's illegal. So I got to hide it. That's his story.
2: And this guy happens to be dead.
1: Yes. He has died of TB while in Europe.
2: That's convenient.
1: Yeah. Now, Hauptmann doesn't tell his wife, Anna, about the money because she's a better person than he, he admits. And she would have insisted that he give the money to the Fish family in Germany since it was his. Mm -hmm. But maybe Hauptmann knows it's not really his. He's going to tell one story that feds aren't going to believe him. Nobody's going to believe
2: him. I'm not. Yeah.
1: And perhaps unsurprisingly, nobody believed him, like I said. Especially since Houtman had already told a couple of lies about the money and how much he had before they found the rest of it in his garage. Mm-hmm. So next, the police turned to handwriting analysis. And Houtman was forced to write and write and write. He, ordered, he was ordered on several occasions to purposely misspell the words the same way they had been misspelled in the ransom notes. And you can go back to the first part and listen if you need a reminder on that one. But then when they got him into court, they used those misspelled words against him.
2: So he would would not purposefully misspell the words when he wrote.
1: He had a very nice penmanship.
2: And it did not match?
1: Not initially.
3: Oh, okay. All right.
1: And in court, he explained, he said, they told me to misspell the words. Nobody believed him. In fact, after he was arrested on September the 19th, 1934, and for the rest of his short life, For right or wrong, you decide. Nobody ever believed a single word that came out of Richard Houtman's mouth.
2: Well, that is unfortunate, but I mean.
1: Well, still, at least initially.
2: But does everybody. Well, okay, hold on. Let me let me ask you this. Is it well known and widely known that they are looking for these
1: notes? These specific. Not widely known. Remember, the, the cops reached out and said to the newspapers, don't publicize this
2: so no one ever knew that they were trying to match these
1: numbers maybe these maybe some people did maybe it wasn't widely known i gotcha yeah we're unclear on that
2: so okay but maybe i don't know It, it to me it just doesn't seem that he could be ruled
1: out oh i agree you can't rule him out
2: no there's
1: there's some incriminating evidence here yeah definitely and so now, initially, we talked about the handwriting analysis. So they bring in two experts, a father-son team of handwriting experts.
3: Okay.
1: And right off the top, they say, nope, not the same guy. This doesn't match. Too many oh. dissimilarities. Oh. And they stuck to that professional opinion right up until the point when the cops called them back a couple of days later and said, hey, we just found $14,600 of ransom money in his garage. Immediately on the spot, they both changed their opinion about whether or not that was Hauptmann's handwriting.
3: Well,
2: they're just completely thrown out. Their testimony is useless. You would think. Useless. Yeah.
1: You would think. Should be. Yeah. So whether correctly or not, the law had their man in custody. Yep. Now, finally, over two years after the Lindbergh kidnapping, the crime of the century was about to make way for the trial of the century. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey, guys, we have a new sponsor here at True Crime on Easy Street. It's a Outdoor Services. They're located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up your deck, clean the gutters, and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home or your house or your creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you and the professional crew at a Outdoor Services. Call 256-706-7964 and let Alan Wells and his guys do all the hard work for you so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County in clean, carefree comfort. Call Alan Wells today for a free estimate or to get on the schedule before it fills up. And it's going to be full soon. Call 256 706 7964 AW Outdoor Services.
2: It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in
0: Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await wet a hook in beautiful Weiss Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a days long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more.
1: The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be.
2: So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the chamber by visiting cherokee-chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post Herald is a great way to do that. The Post Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call (laughs) call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. Thank you so much to all of our sponsors. We love you here at True Crime on
1: Easy Street. Yeah, thanks, guys. Scott, Mm -hmm. tell me more. All right. So sometime on the second day after Houtman's arrival at the Bronx police precinct, word leaked out to local media that a suspect in the Lindbergh kidnapping was in custody. Within minutes, the entire city block around the station was swarmed with print journalists and radio reporters and run-of-the-mill rubberneckers. A press conference was quickly called. Would the arrest solve the kidnapping? Someone asked the New York City police commissioner. His one word reply was yes. And so the William Randolph Hearst inspired, yellow journalism inclined media set about convicting Houtman long before he ever saw the inside of a courtroom. The first headline the day after his arrest read in black letters two inches high Lindbergh kidnapper jailed. Uh oh. It took some legally suspect maneuvering, but eventually Hauptman was extradited to New Jersey. After all, he was only on the hook for extortion in New York City because of his possession of the ransom notes. But the whole world, including the police, already had him headed to the electric chair in their minds. And the kidnapping and murder of little Charlie Lindbergh had taken place on the other side of the Hudson River.
2: and and let me be clear, Scott. When you're talking about his possession of the ransom notes,
1: uh-huh.
2: what notes are you
1: talking? I'm talking about, about gold certificates, the bills. You're not they're talking not, about. They're not calling them bills because they're, they're thirty five thousand was paid in gold notes. Gotcha. Fifteen was paid in standard U S. currency. Yeah. So bills are the green currency. Notes are the gold certificates. Yeah. Not so note, not yeah. ransom notes. I'm yeah. talking gold gotcha. certificates. I'm just saying certificates. As notes.
2: Gotcha. That's what we yeah. mean by Sorry notes that. moving forward. I- yes. I'm just.
1: No, no, I'm glad you clarified that. I All didn't right. even think about that. And so we end up in January of 1935 in the little town of Flemington, New Jersey. Flemington is the county seat of Hunterdon County. And so the trial of Bruno Richard Hauptman for the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby would be held there. Although technically they would never charge him with kidnapping. Because there's no death sentence for kidnapping.
2: They charged him with murder?
1: Murder. Okay. There is a terrific book about what happens next, written in 2012, entitled When the Circus Came to Town, by James Davidson, a resident of Flemington and a journalist. And no mediocre journalist either, because Mr. Davidson's book is pretty darn good. His book tells all about the craziness that swarmed into Flemington overnight in order to cover this trial. Big newspapers nationwide treated the trial as a circulation-boosting bonanza. They sent their best reporters and hired some of the greatest writers of the day to produce daily columns and articles to beef up their coverage and increase their readership. William Randolph Hearst, by no means in search of the actual truth, sent 50 reporters to cover the Hauptman case. Davidson wrote that estimates of the day had the crowd surge into Flemington at the rate of around 50,000 a day. They lined the streets and jeered at Hauptman, whose jail cell, cell number one, was located in the Hunterdon County Jail, which sat adjacent to the old county courthouse, built in 1828 and still standing today.
0: No one had jobs to go to? How are all these people? just?
1: It was the Depression. Uh-huh. Yeah. On the main square in Flemington is where all of this was located. The population of the town at the time, 2,700 people. So smaller than center Alabama where we live today. On the first Sunday that Hauptman was in jail, traffic to simply drive uh, drive past the courthouse was backed up for six miles. Wow. Until the Lindbergh trial, the highlight of life in Flemington was the annual egg-laying contest conducted by a group of local poultry farmers.
2: Which is like laying gold today.
1: Yeah, (laughs) for real. (laughs) Uh, Even so, though, the feathers had never flown in Flemington like they were about to. Now the information about the trial was in such high demand that the presiding judge allowed cameras into the courtroom for the first time in U.S. judicial history.
0: So this is number one.
1: This is before court TV but it's probably why somebody eventually thought of it. Newspapers were about to get scooped by radio newscasts for the first time ever. Radio was new then. Dozens of stations broadcast live every day from Flemington. There's one iconic photo of the courthouse with hundreds of telegraph wires running from the pole in front off in every direction as far away as Paris, Berlin, London, and Sydney, Australia. Because of the demand for content, radio stations started their own news services. NBC News and CBS News exist today because of the Lindbergh trial. Soon radio personalities became major stars with their own special sponsors. Jurgens Lotion sponsored gossip columnist turned broadcaster Walter Winchell, and Philco Radios sponsored the most famous and well-known voice of the day, Oak Carter. Radios already played all day long and more and more homes every day all across the country. They listened to their favorite shows, George Burns and Gracie Allen, Amos and Andy, Jack Benny. And now the entire nation was glued to the radio dial, waiting for the latest news from the Richard Houtman trial. For the 50,000 who couldn't stay away every day and flooded the streets of Flemington, they could buy Houtman pork chops at O'Hara's Restaurant in the town square or miniature wooden ladders, Lindbergh ladders as souvenirs from vendors on the street.
3: Oh, my Lord.
2: For
1: two months, wrote Norman Levy for the American Mercury, the world went mad, and the center of the universe shifted to sleepy little Flemington, New Jersey. All sense of proportion and much of decency was lost. It made you want to resign as a member of the human race.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's just tacky. You're going to make these little ladders and... in a port shop, Come on. No. Yeah, that's... And then you're going to buy them. People would buy them.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Ugh. You guys remember last week when I mentioned that all of the Lindbergh items became collectibles after his transatlantic flight? Yeah. Well, when the trial began, the items most in demand nationwide became photos from outside the courtroom, picture postcards postmarked in Flemington, New Jersey, and trial passes that allowed ordinary citizens to enter the courtroom. So here we are, January the 2nd, 1935, in Flemington, New Jersey. Kelly Turner, are you ready for the trial of the century? Maybe. Because we have our very own trial pass to the courtroom. Her name is Katie Gibbons. She is not a lawyer, but she is our, and I'm doing air quotes, legal expert. (laughs) And this circus is now hers. Katie, grab your gavel and get the show on the road.
0: I'd have my gavel if Shane hadn't stole it to...
1: Knock people over the yeah, head with at the bar? jokes
0: at Easy Street, yeah. <laughs> so the New Jersey State Police had spent 30 months believing the Lindbergh kidnapping was the work of a, a gang of people until Bruno Richard H- Hopman was arrested in September 1934. From that point on, everyone just wanted the case to go away. Law enforcement used the few pieces of evidence that fit and plenty that didn't mm-hmm. to try and convict Richard Hopman. The trials presided over by 71 year old Judge Thomas W. Trenchard with 28 years of continuous service. He had conducted 91 murder trials, passed the death sentence in 11 of those, and none of them had ever been reversed. As Ludovic Kennedy wrote in his 1985 book, Crime of the Century, even the stately Judge Trenchard would have moments during the trial when he found it pretty hard to disguise a bias in favor of the prosecution. Like everyone in this courtroom is on the prosecution. Yeah.
1: They're just, everybody just wants to get to the end. It's a preconceived conclusion.
0: So Bruno has no, no friend Mm. in the courtroom.
1: Not even his own defense attorney.
0: Oh, the jury is composed of eight men and four women. One of the women by the name of Mrs. Verna Snyder was said to have yawned a lot had difficulty understanding questions put to her, and appeared to be deeply disinterested in the whole proceedings.
2: I mean, why is she disinterested in this? What's,
0: what she, is so boring? She's uh, probably thinking, he did it. Yeah, Let's move on. Exactly. What's her name again? Verna Snyder. Come on, Verna. Now, this was according to a newspaper report. Do, so. do
1: better. I knew you were going to say that when you asked your name. Do better. That's hilarious.
0: Jurors are paid $3 per day and spent the entire trial in the top floor of the only hotel in town called the Union Hotel, where in the evenings, they could hear the constant clatter of typewriters on the floor below because that floor is filled with the journalists in town. Some of them. Right. Because, you know, the ones who, I guess, who could get room at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and that noise, that sound oh, will that drive <laughs> you <laughs> mad.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Hearst rented the country club in town. Makes sense. And and kept all of his reporters a few miles away at the country club Mm. because there was literally no more room at the end.
0: And today, jurors are not paid a whole lot more than $3 a day. So Mm. that hasn't changed much with the times. No, inflation has not hit that pool just yet. Yeah. The second floor courtroom in the Hunterton County Courthouse had wooden bench seating for around 250 people. But about 500 people somehow crammed themselves into the space for the duration of the trial. And one journalist wrote that if one, more, if one person had an itch and scratched, his neighbor felt it. Good which I've heard, I've heard that joke before. That's a very old yeah. person saying. They Lord. were
1: jammed in it.
0: The charge against Richard Hopman was not kidnapping, which did not carry the death penalty in 1932, as Scott mentioned earlier. Instead, instead that charge was murder committed during a robbery, which... Of course did carry the death penalty. Let's take a moment to have a quick rundown of the indisputable evidence against Hopman. Let's do. We want to talk about that. Yeah. Number one, we have the fourteen thousand six hundred dollars in ransom money found in Hopman's garage and the fact that he lied repeatedly, initially that is, about how he came to be in possession of those notes. Yes. Well, that's it. <laughs> in fact, celebrated criminal lawyer clarence darrow said in an interview that he believed the case against hopman was weak just for the fact that he had the ransom money on him doesn't prove he had anything to do with the murder darrow said but few others possessed such authority and standing or the courage to voice that they might have been thinking but dared not to speak out loud
2: gotcha so everybody's wrapped up in this You don't want to be the one individual on this guy's side. No, you know, you do not. I mean, that's just, that's going to be a big problem for you. You guys have already said that the handwriting, quote, experts have retracted and said, no, it's not his handwriting. Yes, it was. No, it's not. They're they're just completely um, useless.
1: The fix is in.
2: Yeah, they're useless. Okay, and uh, so what else, Katie? What What do we have that is that is saying mm-hmm. he may not have been responsible for this?
0: Well, we'll go through what's saying he might have been responsible. Okay, like all right. The evidence that's disputable in this case. Gotcha. Um, there's the homemade wooden ladder okay. that was used to enter the residence. He's a carpenter. He was a carpenter, and... uh I don't even know if you can call this circumstantial. Yeah, I don't either. But that's probably the closest term to it. I mean, it's a stretch. But didn't you say it was kind of like
2: a, I mean, they wouldn't have used the sword. It was kind of a janky ladder.
1: Yeah, a little Mm -hmm. bit. It was built in a hurry, maybe. Used just whatever pieces of wood could be found. The the rungs were 18 inches apart instead of the standard 12 inches apart. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a very good ladder, but it was a ladder. I mean,
0: and- I feel like that saying, we found a pair of scissors and the person was a hairdresser.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I, I understand what you're saying with that. Um, and, and two, we talked about how the the Lindberghs were there just by happenstance that much. particular night. So if they happen upon, oh, tonight's got to be the night and you build a ladder in a hurry. Maybe. Maybe. Sure. Okay. But definitely didn't look like the work of a carpenter. No. No. Eh. There was some
1: there was some carpentry expertise that went into the construction of the ladder mm-hmm. but it wasn't a nice a well constructed nicely done ladder that was built with forethought and planning gotcha
0: okay all right one witness millard whited who claimed to have seen Hopman driving past his house in a car with a ladder in the back on the day of the kidnapping mm-hmm. He he's gave his testimony, but it turned out White had been promised a share of the $25,000 reward money for said testimony. It was on his word that the state of New York extradited Hopman to New Jersey so he could be charged with robbery and murder or murder during the commission of a robbery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another witness, 87 year old Amanda's Hockmouth, came forth after 30 months of silence to claim that he had seen Hopman near the Lindbergh home on March 1st, but Hockmuth had cataracts in both eyes. And when asked to identify, identify a vase with flowers in it from 10 feet away, he declared it was a woman's hat.
2: My gosh. You just can't make this up. Mm-mm.
1: I told you it was nuts when we started.
0: A
2: woman's hat. A
0: woman's hat instead of a vase of flowers. But
2: 30 months ago, he remembers clearly seeing.
0: I mean, Scott, you Does, don't have your glasses on. What's that over there? A woman's hat. <laughs>
3: There's a vase, there? flowers, <laughs> a vase of flowers. A vase of
2: flowers. How in the heck...
1: Yeah. What kind of hat would that be? Obviously, a hat with flowers.
2: Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I guess you know
1: a tall hat with flowers. I
2: mean, you, guys, you cannot. Your eyewitness has cataracts, really? Yeah, and Both it was those eyes. two
1: witnesses, like Katie said. That's the only way they could get him across the Hudson to try him for the for the murder of the baby was to put him in that location around the Lindbergh estate on the day of the kidnapping. So they found these two, even, even though neither of them remembered anything when they were asked by the cops in the days after. Yes,
0: this is 30 months 30 later. 30 months
1: later, all of a sudden they remember this. The- White had got $1,000 of that $25,000 reward money. Mm.
2: A lot of money at the time.
1: Yeah, that's 17 grand.
2: That's the guy who saw the ladder in his car. Yes. Now, what did cataracts get?
1: Uh, some portion of the award money, uh, maybe 500 bucks. There was a list that I saw and I remember what White had got. I don't remember what Hockmuth got.
0: Yeah, I don't know exactly. Okay. All right. Well. But all that really had to happen was for Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr., the most famous upstanding man in the world, to climb into the witness chair and testify under oath that two years earlier, from 80 yards away, he had heard the voice of Richard Hockman, an illegal immigrant with a rap sheet back home in Germany, shout, Hey, doctor, on the night that Dr. Joseph F. Condon paid the ransom. So, Jaffsy.
2: Okay, because th- that was the night he's driving the car and he's out in the, the second cemetery. Right. Yes. And he's, he's speaking with the gentleman and yep. he,
1: he heard Lindbergh stays the with the car. Mm-hmm. Jaffsy goes, he's walking through the cemetery to find Cemetery John so he can give him the money. Mm-hmm. And Lindbergh hears a voice say, hey, doctor. And to get his says, attention from 80 yards away.
0: That's Bruno's voice. Yes. Yes. Okay. Lindbergh did that on day one of the trial. After that happened, it became impossible for Jaffsey to stick with his initial story, which was that Hotman was not the man he had met on two occasions in cemeteries. First to discuss the ransom and then to pay it. He'd spoken to this man twice and he declared this was not the man. Uh-oh. And so Jaffsy climbed into the witness chair and told what he most likely in his heart of hearts believed was a lie. And what he said under oath helped send a man, possibly, and in my mind, probably an innocent man to the electric chair. Oh, Lord.
2: So, but as a defense attorney, not a defense attorney, but as the prosecution, Mm -hmm. that was a wise decision if you're wanting to win to put Lindbergh Lindbergh up there, number one, first to say
1: very smart who's gonna yeah who's gonna disagree with the most famous man in the world beyond reproach colonel lindbergh hero to the nation and the world yeah you're gonna call him a liar in a courtroom when his son's dead
2: how dare you
1: no you are not
2: no and 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 was a fan you said a huge fan fan of of this man and so he lied or you believe that Yes. Well, his first story was... He changed his story anyway. Okay, so he first said, that's not
0: your man. Yes. Oh, Lord. <sighs> One aspect about Cemetery John that gave Jaffsey pause, if only to himself by the time he came to testify, was that the man he saw in the cemetery had strangely shaped thumbs on both hands and Hotman did not. Probably like toe thumbs. We've seen the toe thumbs. Mm. If you've seen memes of um, Megan Fox online, she's got toe thumbs. Really? What, is it, what does that mean? It what looks is... like, your thumb looks like a toe. <laughs> but, oh, well, yeah. that's, that's okay. But maybe, maybe his, pro, his <laughs> are probably worse than the yeah. toe thumbs.
1: Well, there's I some, some speculation. There's one book, there's a book titled, actually, Cemetery John. And the guy who writes this book thinks that he knows who John was. He thinks it's another person that operated in this, in this area at the time in the Bronx. His mm-hmm. name was John Knoll. And John Knoll was a butcher. And so, he speculates that the uh, reason he had disformed thumbs was because of, through the years, over the years, accidentally cutting himself, and then maybe it grows back wrong, or, you know, you don't take good care of the wound. mm -hmm. Just speculation, but that's one of the many conspiracy theories we could dive down into about who Cemetery John really was.
2: Was Cemetery John, or Butcher John, let me ask, was Butcher Uh John, did did he kidnap? Children for ransom?
1: No, but he was German, and he knew these people, and uh, it seemed he had a criminal record of some kind. He knew the family. The he, I don't remember if he... No, I don't think Noel knew the Lindberghs, but Noel knew Hauptman. They were acquaintances.
2: I gotcha. Okay. He wasn't uh, like the, the butcher for the
1: Lindberghs or anything? I don't think so. No, he's okay. over in the Bronx. Okay. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So Jaffsey told the jury Hauptman was the man he had met with. As the New York Times pointed out, the day after Jassy got off the witness stand, he was the state's most crucial witness because on that first occasion, Jassy had spoken with the man who later became known as Cemetery John for over an hour. I mean, like he is the only person who has spoken to this. You know,
1: it was dark, but they sat on a park bench and talked about what was happening and the and the baby and the ransom and they talked for an hour in the dark at night in the cemetery. But that's like Katie said, that's your most crucial witness because he's the only one who spent time with somebody who's for sure involved in the kidnapping.
0: In the months prior to the trial, state prosecutors had threatened uh, Jaffsey with potential prosecution as a co-conspirator if he did not positively identify Hotman at trial. So oh. now they're talking like, yeah. Hey, if you don't identify him, why aren't you identifying him? Are you working with him? Yeah, We him? know it's
1: him. Why don't you know it's him? Are you in on it?
2: Mm. Oh, that's a scary place to be.
0: Besides, if Jassy had contradicted the most revered man in America, you know, Scott said over and over, his reputation would have been destroyed. And so in the end, I mean, he cracked. Yeah. Hoffman did not get a lot of help from his defense counsel well-known Brooklyn criminal attorney Edward Riley. Most of his salary was being paid by William Randolph Hearst in exchange for exclusive interviews from Hopman, Hopman's wife, Anna. So he was getting firsthand tales from, you know, I guess the only really inside source they'd have into Hotman. During the course of his preparation to defend Hotman, Riley had visited his client four times for a total of 38 minutes according to Kennedy in Crime of the Century. Goodness. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's spoken to him less time than we've been recording this episode. But his wife is talking to the papers. Right. Is she trying to help? Oh, yeah, she's trying. She
1: is. Yeah, she's saying he wasn't there. He was with me. There are three dates in particular, the date of the kidnapping, the date the ransom money was paid, and one other date when they determined that somebody that matched Houtman's description handed a $5 note to a ticket taker at a movie theater. Mm-hmm. That was on his birthday, and he was at a birthday party that night. He didn't go to the movies, but that's one of the three key dates in the prosecution's case to tie Houtman to the money and to the kidnapping.
0: And she's, you know,
1: so she's, alibi. she's, yeah. yeah.
2: So what about this fish guy? Did he have weird thumbs?
1: Nope. He was a criminal, but he didn't have weird thumbs. He didn't
2: thumbs. have weird thumbs. Yeah.
0: After Hotman was taken into custody in New Jersey in October of 1934, the New Jersey State Police assumed the rent on his apartment in the Bronx and stayed there through the trial, refusing to let anyone, including the defense, inside to inspect the property or look for information that would aid Hoffman at trial.
1: My gosh. Yeah, they took every piece of paper that had his handwriting on it and kept it from the defense so that they could couldn't hold it up and say, this is... What his handwriting looks like, not that.
2: Is this not at this time the judge's responsibility to step in and go? You know what? You can't do that. Well, Is that not what the judge does? Am I wrong?
1: Normally, well, the the fairest person in this whole thing should be the judge. Was the judge? Okay, but like Katie said uh, earlier, even Judge Trenchard was obviously leaning towards the prosecution with most of his rulings. He would sustain their objections. He would overrule defense objections. He let the, he let the ladder into evidence, even though there was no indication whatsoever that Hauptman had anything to do with that ladder mm-hmm. at the time that that ruling was made.
3: Wow.
0: This is obviously a, would be illegal today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have to assume like you couldn't hold evidence from the other side like this. But and
2: what about trying to look up? And I may be jumping ahead, and I'll I'll, I'll stop. I, I'm 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 getting. I have so many questions now. I'm getting like, oh my gosh, what about the appeals process?
1: Didn't take very long.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll go. I mean, we'll I'm thinking the that. Supreme Court didn't hear this. They did. Mm.
2: All right, I'll shut up and just let it happen. <laughs>
0: You can do your own digging and make yeah. up your mind about the guilt or innocence of poor Bruno Richard Hotman. in my eyes. There are arguments for both, some more believable than others. The information against Hotman, however accurate it was, was more than enough for the jury. Because on February 13th, 1935, after only 10 hours of deliberation, it was a unanimous vote on the third ballot for Hotman to be declared guilty. Yeah, we saw that coming. Mm -hmm. As the verdict was read inside the courtroom, a crowd of thousands gathered in the street outside, shouting repeatedly, kill Hoffman, kill the German. Which probably didn't help with like how...
2: They were letting some other things leak into that with Hitler. I was going to say, him being a German
0: did not help this, I don't think. Judge Trenchard soon obliged their request, which could be heard from everyone in the courtroom, when he sentenced him to death. After all his appeals were exhausted, and despite the repeated concerns of New Jersey Governor Harold Hoffman about the defendant being railroaded, as he said, I have never in my life seen a man shown more hatred than at that trial. At one point, Governor Hoffman agreed to Hoffman's request to come and visit him in prison, so he gets a a visit from the governor. And after the visit, Governor Hoffman wrote, uh, his story and his unanswered questions put doubts in my mind.
2: And that's pretty bold for this governor to say that. I mean, mm-hmm. you're wanting someone who's living your life by election. Yeah. That's, wow.
0: I mean, during their meeting, Haltman repeatedly screamed his innocence. He begged that both he and Jaffsey take lie detector tests. He's like, please give us lie detector tests. And in December of 1935, the United States Supreme Court declined to consider Haltman's petition to be heard.
2: Why? What was the? Re- you know, they have to give a reason why yeah. they declined.
1: No, no, they don't. No,
2: oh, they don't. Uh-uh. I thought they had to give a reason. Not nope. the
0: United States Supreme Court,
1: the U.S. Court. Supreme Court, and, and I don't know if they did or not, but they don't have to.
0: Oh, why did I think that? I mm-hmm. thought they maybe think- they just
2: usually give a
0: reason. Yeah, they might, Yeah. Okay. Two weeks later, Charles, Ann and Little John Lindbergh climbed aboard the steamship American Importer and left this continent to seek peace and relative anonymity. <laughs> oh, I knew I was about to butcher that. To seek peace and relative anonymity in Europe. Eventually, they settled just off the coast of England, and they lived in the only house on tiny Rocky Island.
1: It's a cute little house, and it is a rocky little island, just barely room in the middle of all these huge rocks for a little house, and that's where they lived.
2: And how did they, I, I, I'm just thinking, okay, now, now you gotta, you got to live, so how are you getting it? Is there a town nearby?
0: Is there
1: a I boat? assume that there's a boat and they can I think it's one of those little islands where when it's at low tide you can walk to the mainland.
0: Okay. Well, and it's very
1: close to shore too, yeah. I mean yeah. I
0: bet mean, it's kinda of like living in Hog Island on the lake. Yeah, it's something oh, like okay. that. Yeah. Right.
2: Okay. Hog Island is a is a little place uh in uh
1: beautiful Weiss, Weiss Lake.
2: Beautiful Weiss Lake here where we live. Yeah.
1: Cherokee chamberorg chamber dot org if you'd like to see photos.
2: Well mm. they are building houses out there. That's right. They are so, How about that?
0: Richard Hoffman was given several chances to admit his guilt and spare his life, but he refused them all, despite being promised $90,000 by the Hearst chain of papers for his confession. After one reprieve from Governor Hoffman, um, because governors in New Jersey. They do not have the power, or they did not at the time, to commute a death sentence to life in prison, like we have learned that they do in Alabama, if you listen to our episode number one. Very
1: first episode, we tell you that Governor Fobb James shoved his commutation pen right in his eye with Judith Ann Neely's commutation of death to life in prison. Yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Bruno Richard Hopman was executed in the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. He was- One year later? One year later. He was 36 years old, and he left behind a wife and a son. Minutes before he was put to death, he had turned down one last deal from the state. The deal was, admit your guilt, name your co-conspirators, and you will serve life in prison. And to the shock of the prosecutors who made the offer, Hopman declined and once again maintained his total innocence. State officials, according to one story, had offered him the last-minute deal because they had become afraid that they had convicted the wrong man, and the truth would eventually come out, and it would look like they had strong-armed so many witnesses into cooperating with this frame job.
2: I mean that it it does. It's already looked that way. Mm-hmm. It's not going to would I mean, look that way. Yeah. It, it does. Originally, it, it I think sure you were convinced
0: way. he did it. <clears throat> were you not, Kelly? Yeah, you, you were first leaning first, that way me, yeah. when you first told me those.
2: He had those. Yeah. The money or the well, notes in his possession, I was like,
1: hold up. Well, you were the same as the police at the time. They they saw the money and thought, hey, follow the money, and it will bring us to the conclusion of this case. But yeah. as the pieces started to stack up against their their first conclusion, unlike you-
2: Yeah, I was willing to say, wait they a just
1: Yeah, they just threw the steering wheel out the window and let the car barrel down the mountain.
2: Because even the story he gave- I said that's convenient. Mm-hmm. He's given a very convenient story. But it all checked oh, out. Oh, this guy, he he gave it to me and now he's dead.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I was thinking, hmm. I know. You know. But you know what? But how but how
1: easy would it have been to say, yeah, the dead guy did it.
2: Yeah. And he didn't. He didn't say that. He didn't take any of these deals, but then but what did it for me were the the, the man who spoke to him. Yeah, to the
1: to Cemetery John.
2: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Is initially saying, no, this is not him. They
1: brought him into the police station after they had arrested Hauptmann and put him in a lineup with four police officers and Hauptmann mm-hmm. and said, Dr. Condon, do you see the man? And he said, no. No, I don't see him. He talked to him. He said, do you remember talking to me? Say something out loud. Say this. And Hauptmann, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Condon and Hauptmann had this conversation in the police station. And he left going, look, a man's life is on the line here. That's not him.
2: That is not him. And also, this Jaffsy, as odd as it is, seems to be committed uh, to figuring out who is responsible well, for this.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and Halman said later that he could not wait. When he saw Jaffsy walk into the courtroom, he thought, my God, thank goodness, this is about to be over with. Because he said in front of me and all of those police officers it was not me in the cemetery, and then he climbed up on the chair and he fucking rolled on him.
2: And his testimony now is just as useless as the hand handwriters. I mean to me, you gotta you gotta throw him out and you gotta throw the handwriters out. Well, it's like Katie said if you do that, what do you have left and what you don't have is enough evidence to convict a man and sentence him to die. Murder.
1: Like Katie said, all that had to happen was for Charles Lindbergh to say, "Yeah, that's his voice." Yeah, that's all that mattered. That's all it took.
2: And do we believe that Charles was just a just a grieving father who just wanted this to end, wanted somebody to fry for this? Maybe. I mean, was I can't imagine being in
1: his shoes.
0: Are you going to tell us a little more about Lindbergh?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah.
0: So they moved to the island
2: whatever the island is. Yeah, uh was
1: Rocky, wasn't it called Rocky? Rocky, Rocky Island, Rocky island. No, all right? Rocky so island. they are not very creative with the name. They no. moved
2: there with their son
1: John. That's right. All right. But I mean I mean the case that's it. That's the end of the story yeah. as far as the trial goes, but there's we're going to mop up a few things that there's listen, we could do this for two more hours. All the things that we didn't get to about this case. So we're just going to hit a few little buttons or a few little bullet points on the way out the door.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure there are podcasts who who oh, yeah. take whole seasons and, and You could take a day. whole season on yeah. this
1: thing. You really yeah. could. So, uh, you know, I I mentioned earlier that Lindbergh... I kept mentioning Adolf Hitler, right? Yeah. There are some people, there's some conspiracy theories that think that Lindbergh had a little Nazi in him. He was into eugenics. (laughs) And little Charlie had rickets. And there's one conspiracy theory that on one of the flights that Charles and Anne took together, they were setting a world speed record from between two cities. I forget the two cities. And was seven months pregnant with little Charlie at the time. And they had to fly over a storm. And they didn't have oxygen in the plane. So they were both deprived of oxygen for a period of time. And to the point where she had to spend the last two months of her pregnancy bedridden. And they think that maybe the baby in the womb was affected by the lack of oxygen. Yeah,
2: definitely. And was
1: born with these birth defects. And Charles Lindbergh, he, he didn't want a broken baby. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So there's one theory that he was in on it. And the reason that he missed that speaking engagement at the Waldorf Astoria was so that he could come home early and supervise and just kind of keep an eye on things and make sure everything went according to plan. I think that's a ridiculous conspiracy theory, but it's out say. there.
0: But there's no evidence to back that up.
1: Not really. Okay. It's just, you know, 90 years and...
0: I mean, what he had... That's like weakening of the bones, right? That's what babies Yeah, Charlie yeah. Had. You
1: can end up bow-legged. And, and there was a situation where uh, little Charlie's toes curled on top of each other, but Betty Gow always said that that was because his shoes were too small. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah. So...
0: You know, there's studies that say you shouldn't even put kids in shoes until like they're like walking outside, and like you should let them be barefoot and let their feet develop.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Um, another thing, that, you know, why don't why don't we do DNA evidence? I mean, we can take some of those original envelopes and see if the Hauptmans are connected directly to it.
2: Now that makes sense to me.
1: Well, the state of New Jersey has refused to release that, Those pieces of evidence.
2: Why? Why now? Because they it don't.
1: Because it. Let's put this to bed, maybe. Yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, the rest of the but world is do. digging up old evidence and using DNA to confirm or deny. I don't know why it hasn't been done in the limber but let's case. put it to bed. Makes yeah, sense let's, to me. let's do that. Our FBI guy, John Douglas, you know, we talk about him all the time on this show, like he's our guy. Uh, <laughs> he has said on the record that this was obviously a multi-person operation mm-hmm. done by professionals, not by a common criminal mm-hmm. like Richard Houtman, who's two convictions for petty mm-hmm. theft. Uh, in Germany and had been a model citizen
3: mm-hmm.
1: for first of all, because he's an illegal alien in the country. Yeah. Since he got here, the last thing he wants to do is get himself into trouble.
0: Right. And get sent back again.
1: Yeah. That's why he lied about how much money he had. He said, I had a hundred dollars at my house. Cause he knew that was the limit mm-hmm. that you could legally have.
0: Should have said 60.
1: Yeah. No kidding. Um, and as far as those crimes he committed in Germany, I mean, he stole some food and he broke into the mayor's house. He did use a ladder to do that. But everybody in Germany in 1922 was fending for their lives. It was the World War I had just ended and Germany lost.
0: Yeah. Oh, and they've got all these reparations. And Yes. It, yeah. I mean, they're the, struggling. The
1: depression started in Germany. I mean, it, the, there was depression type conditions in Germany. Eight, year, eight years, nine years, 10 years before it happened anywhere else.
0: Well, that's when we learned, you know, You can't impose those kind of reparations on places and expect them to not turn around and 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 want revenge.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and turn into fascists and blame it on the Jews. So, like I said a minute ago, Houtman could have blamed the dead man, Isidore Fish. Instead, he went to the chair. And now here's the story about Fish that we need to tell everybody. There's one book that tells the story that he was a money launderer, a common criminal. If someone had money that they were afraid could be traced, Fish would buy it for pennies on the dollar in exchange for assuming the risk of laundering it. And that perhaps is why he had the 14600 that he couldn't do anything else with. It's gold notes, first of all. So the one person he trusts, his business partner, Houtman, keep this box for me, don't open it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll get it when I come back. And then he goes overseas and dies of TB.
2: Do you think Fish might have had some to do with it? Maybe,
1: Not necessarily. Maybe. Maybe he was maybe a he, part
2: of the Maybe he the knew who it
1: was, or maybe he, he knew the guys who did it, and they're like, hey, man, we know that you wash money. Can you wash this for us, please?
2: hmm mm-hmm. But a simple investigation could have,
1: you know. If only who, there had been one.
2: Who's fish, and who Who are the people that he had dealt with, typically, even if he's dead already, but who did he deal well, with? Well, there's
1: one author who did. Okay. But the cops didn't, right, Katie? Well,
0: yeah, but did they end up getting the larger amount of ransom money? What do you mean? Like they had originally said fifty thousand, and then they upped it to.
1: No, they got. The, they only got fifty because that's okay. one thing that happened on the night that uh, Jaffsee delivered the money. He had one box with fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars in it. He had another smaller box with an additional twenty in it, right. and all twenty of that was gold notes that the FBI or the uh, the, the Treasury Department wanted to give to the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. But Jaffsee, thinking he's doing Lindbergh a solid. Talks the kidnapper back down to the original 50 and comes back very proud of himself that he's saved Lindbergh 20 grand only for the Treasury Department agents to slap himself in the forehead and go, you idiot. We wanted him to have that money so it would be in circulation and maybe we could catch them.
0: See, I wondered if they hadn't upped their fee because they learned how much it was going to cost them to
1: wash it possibly hey who knows i mean maybe the whole thing about uh punishing you for going to the police was just an excuse maybe they did like hey we need to get 20 more to get what we originally thought we were going to have
3: because
1: we're going to lose that when we have fish wash it for us Mm -hmm. could be so we talked about the and being seven months pregnant we talked about the missed speaking engagement and that conspiracy theory that Lindbergh was actually in on it which is preposterous but it's out there uh, and there's another conspiracy theory that supposes that Anne Morrow Lindbergh's sister, Elizabeth, who suffered from mental issues and died at a young age, I think she died at 30, that possibly in a fit of jealousy, she had hurt the baby, maybe killed it. And so the family staged this kidnapping to keep her out of prison. That's a conspiracy theory.
3: That's always yeah. a conspiracy
2: theory in everything. Right. I mean, that's in John Bonet. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty standard. Any of
1: our, yeah. And then years later, of course, it would be discovered that Charles Lindbergh, and we mentioned this, had an additional seven children. He flew to Germany a lot. He got to know the, the folks in Germany in between the kidnapping and the beginning of World War II because he was the world's premier aviator. So the government actually sent him over to England, I'm, I'm sorry, to Germany to, to find out what was going on with the Luftwaffe.
3: Well,
2: it sounds like he got to know someone really well.
1: He got to know three people really well, like really well. Like K.Y. Jellywell. Oh God. <laughs> you did it, not me. <laughs> I
2: know. So he had
1: He had seven, seven children, children over the course three... of with three different women in Germany through the years, and he would only see them once or twice a year. There's a documentary series, uh it's a it's a documentary movie on YouTube, and I forget the title. It's something like The Secret Life of Charles Lindbergh Lives. Mm-hmm. Because he would fly to Germany, he'd gotten to He's know got these people. Four families. now. He's got four families.
2: So let me ask you this: if if this had come out before the trial, well,
1: it his... could, this didn't happen until the fifties. Oh, okay. I yeah. was gonna say, okay, yeah.
2: that this happened after after World War II is when he started okay,
1: making he these, started these trips to, to post war Germany Wait,
0: after World War II. Yes. Okay. Because wasn't weren't there like stories of him maybe being a Nazi?
1: Yeah, and that's what. The United States government sent him to Germany before World War II to kind of scout out, hey, they'll show you, you're Colonel Lindbergh, you're the most famous guy in the world, see what's going on at their airports, how many warplanes do they have, how many bombers. And in the process of doing that, he made these connections with people who lived in Germany before the war, and maybe became sympathetic to the Nazi cause because he was interested in eugenics, and he's, he gave speeches about eugenics during uh, the years leading up to the war, and he was very much a pacifist, and isolationist about World War II. Yeah, and there were a lot of people in the country who were that doesn't put him on any particular list. But there's one particular speech where he said something very divisive, very anti-Semitic about, about the say, Jews. There
0: are some anti-Semitic comments and that the, the yeah. whole
1: world turned on him overnight. Well, yeah.
0: you know,
1: you and this was before the war started, but he lost he lost his standing with the world over mm-hmm. one anti-Semitic sentence that he said in a speech, trying to convince the U.S. that they needed to stay out of World War II. Well,
0: I'm pretty. I'm pretty certain like he, he meant what he said. Like he I think he was anti Semitic, right? I well, think
1: he, well, a lot of people or, were back or then.
0: Or I think his biographer maybe says he's not or wasn't a Nazi anyway.
1: Right. I One of his biographers can... said he was not a Nazi and that this is all preposterous and ridiculous. But I mean the, the three families in Germany obviously he made some connections over there and got to know these people and went around to parties when he would go and visit and but he had these ironic. families.
2: How ironic that his word was the law in the courtroom.
1: Yeah. His word was the law everywhere he spoke. Just a few years earlier. Until he said the wrong thing.
2: And sent a man to die. Yeah. And then now he's saying words again and bam. Just another
1: thing that makes you think about how this case was handled. Katie, what were you going to say?
0: Was uh, Hoffman a Jew?
1: No, he was German. He was. Uh, I mean, he was. He was blonde. Jew? He. Well, yeah. He was. But he was blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I mean, he. You know. He looked okay. like.
0: I did a quick Google search and couldn't find any info on that. So yeah. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Could be. I mean, I'm not sure about his he his probably heritage. no.
0: If if, if how you're on his father's me,
1: side, he, he was German.
0: He doesn't sound like he's Jewish. Yeah. But you could be a you could be a Jew in Germany because like that's where you know we obviously there's not any more.
1: Yeah. Really. but right. You
0: could have at the time.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Up mm-hmm. until then, you when he left in 23, you could.
0: Yeah. But the uh, the. The man that was... When I say not anymore, I mean sent- not anymore, like at this time that this yes, is happening. Yes, No, no like, I got yeah. you. I got
2: you. Um, but not the man that was sent to death. We don't believe that he
1: was a
0: Jewish. Jew. That's
1: what I was asking. About I that. don't think so. Okay. okay. He's right. just described everything that I've read he's described as just German. They say mm-hmm. like Teutonic German the whole time. Gotcha,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. they they would, I think he would be described as a Jew if I he was a Jew. I think that would have come up. I just was curious if that yeah. placed any bias yeah. in mm-hmm. Lindbergh's mind was my... Gotcha. I got you. Yeah, and
1: so, um, and so that's uh, one last little thing. Uh, two things. Uh, so we talked about the Lindbergh Law. So before the year was out in '32, Congress had passed a law, and so now if you kidnap somebody and take them across state lines, that's a federal crime punishable by uh, by death, and the FBI is on your ass because of this law that was passed called the Lindbergh Law. One last thing: in the decades after the case ended, at least six people have come forward to claim that they are the Lindbergh baby, including one black female.
0: Wait, what? Okay. Mm -hmm. What do you mean claiming to be the Lindbergh baby?
1: Claiming that they found the wrong baby in the woods and it's me. Oh! Yeah. That's been, I mean, that's not right. Okay. But it doesn't stop the crazies from coming out, right? Mm. So Charles Lindbergh died in August of 74 in Hawaii. He was 72 years old. He's got a beautiful gravesite. He built it himself. Um, and on his deathbed, he wrote letters to his three families in Germany asking them to never say a word about him. But and that no, lasted sir. until the children got into their 20s. And there's this one picture of three of them at a press conference in the early 2000s. Yeah. After DNA could confirm that these three adult human beings in Germany were Charles Lindbergh's children. And so DNA evidence did confirm that. And th- since others have come out. And Man. Admitted it.
0: He took a turn in my mind.
1: I know. Me too. I didn't know about this part of his life until last week.
0: He's like, let me go off and do whatever I want, but hey, don't actually. It blew
1: me away. I didn't know anything about Lindbergh's life after this happened. Mm -hmm. Really? Well,
0: it sounds like he wanted to seclude himself live on this little island mm-hmm. just be him and his family but what it really sounds like is he wanted his family out on this little island secluded and then he could run off and fly and do what yeah. he wanted
1: and don't forget that these three women that he has families with in germany they're all germany i mean they're all german mm-hmm. and he's got this if he's into this eugenics thing he thinks he's spreading his good genes throughout the world doing his part to further the cause of eugenics
2: good luck we'll like explaining eat- that
1: to your wife yeah yeah I don't know know if he ever did. I don't know that part of the story. I don't know how that went down with Anne, if she ever knew, but Anne Morrow Lindbergh, she died in February of 2001 at 94 years old. A successful author published many books, including books about uh, some of the flights that she took with Charles back in the day and uh, uh, about growing up and raising a family so I've never read one of her books, but I kind of want to.
0: I'd like to read a book written by her about yeah. her finding out about these other friends. <laughs> I don't
1: now, know if that one exists. Now,
0: where, where? Well, she lived long enough she, to know about
1: where it. Where did she live? Um, Anne died in, I want to say she died in Connecticut, but I don't know if that's where she lived. Mm-hmm. Actually, she didn't live long enough. She died in 01 and the family members in Europe didn't come out until 03. Maybe they waited for Anne to die.
0: That's respectful.
1: To spill the beans on that.
0: But not that... Bless her heart, I mean...
1: Yeah, like she'd been through enough. Let's yeah. let her die in peace. Whatever peace she can find. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's... Uh, I told you, this was crazy. There's so and much. It's,
2: there's so much, and, I, and I'd be interested to know what Anne's children feel about yeah. these children in
1: Germany. Uh, it's probably out there. You can probably Google it and find out. I didn't get that far down this rabbit hole, but I'm sure it's out there.
0: But didn't like John Lindbergh, the oldest son die in like a one, I mean, he died I mean, in 21. 20,
1: he died in 21. Yeah. He was 88 years old. We mentioned that you last said that, week.
0: Yeah. Last week. Yeah. So the younger children are probably still, maybe still. Or maybe
1: old. depending on, the yeah, others. there's, you know, uh, four others after John. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure of the, the gender or the age exactly, but I know that there were five after little Charlie.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh. So. Well, this was a. Uh, we learned a lot today. Thank you, guys. This was a great case, and uh, there was a lot I didn't know
1: for sure. There was a lot I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So, so I hope we uh, hope we entertained everybody out there, uh, do. guys. Don't forget to check us out on our website. Go to truecrimeoneasystreet.com. dot com. You can learn a little bit more about the three of us. You can buy some merch. We got t shirts left, right? We do. You can buy some merchandise. You can see our full list of episodes. We've done all kinds of. Cr- fantastic crazy stories just like this one so go and dig through you might find something else that you don't realize that we've already covered if you find something that you want us to cover that we haven't drop us an email we love suggestions like kelly mentioned so uh just keep true crime out there and we'll keep doing it in here good night everybody